If you have your copy of God's Word, turn to the book of Galatians. It's in the New Testament. It's after the Gospels. You get past 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. If you've got your phone, you can open up the YouVersion app, and we are in your events in there. I'd love for you to have God's Word in front of you. Something I've said from time to time is that, honestly, I'd rather you look more at Scripture as I preach than me as I preach. I'd rather you be head down in the Word as as we go through this text than on me as, as we're in the text. So whatever means you have to get there, I would encourage you to be in Galatians chapter 2 with me. One of the worst feelings in 2021 is walking up to a restaurant and finding the doors locked. You have anybody yet? <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, at least put a sign up or something. I, I don't... I don't know why, but it feels humiliating to pull on a door and for it to be locked. I, I don't, I've tried to think through, like, why am I so embarrassed by that? Uh, but I, I don't know. Some places have been closed to protect against COVID. Some places have been closed because they can't find employees. And since we're still waiting on our building, which I hope to update you on soon, I do a lot of work in restaurants. Like I'll go, I'll go hunker down in Wendy's and spend four hours in Wendy's with their drink machines that have all the choices. <laughs> and I have pulled on a lot of locked doors recently. And I, I guess it's the feeling of wasting your time. Like I, I, par- I pulled into this off of the highway and I parked and I got my bag and everything in my bag and I walked up to the door and it's locked. Okay, well, now I got to go back to my car. I got to pull back on the highway. I got to try to find another place. And this happened where I've pulled into several places and they've been locked. Well, as we, as we waste our time, as we have that feeling of wasting, uh, wasting our time walking up to restaurants, really anything we do in vain leaves us with, with some feeling of disappointment, maybe even some regret. We want our actions and our decisions. I know maybe walking up to a restaurant feels a little light compared to this, but we want all of our actions and decisions to have meaning and consequence. We, we want as people to be meaningful and consequential. It, it's a harsh criticism to say you are inconsequential and you have no meaning. If someone said that to you, that, that would be, that'd be really hurtful. That's like high on the, the hurtometer. Paul speaks to his to our desire to have meaning and consequence in Galatians chapter 2. He's got limited time and limited, limited energy like we all do, and he wants to be sure he's using them wisely. He wanted to be sure his life and the work of his life to preach the gospel were not just a waste. So our focus passage is Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And in this passage, Paul is working to build his credibility with the Galatian church as a trustworthy, as, as really for them, the trustworthy ambassador for the gospel. So the main idea of verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2 is this. This is the, this is the main idea. We're going to kind of see the rest of the text in this main idea. Paul's apostolic ministry and gospel message were confirmed by the other apostles. So apostolic apostles there, we want to keep coming back to. The apostles were those who were with Jesus um, they, they lived with him. He blessed them and sent them out. So there were the limited number of apostles. And Paul, what, Paul's apostolic ministry as one who was with Jesus, who was sent out by Jesus, 
and his gospel message were confirmed by the others. And that's an important endorsement. Paul's telling his life story here. It's a narrative. He's recounting what he went through to have receipts for his theology. If you go back through chapter 1, and then even as you look ahead in chapter 2, Paul's telling his story. And this endorsement from the apostles is an important part of his story. But within this story, he's also teaching. So when we look at this, we're going to read the story, we're going to read the narrative, and we're going to look at what he's teaching us in his story. So let's, en- let's enjoy opening up God's Word together, and let's start here in verse 1. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Look look at how Paul invested in other men here. He's telling his life story, and it's almost by just how can he tell his life story without teaching how he invests in other men? It's what Paul did in his life. Meaningful discipleship, then what we learn, how Paul invests, meaningful discipleship is along with me. And that's, it feels strange to say it that way, but I think it's a helpful way to think about it. Meaningful discipleship is along with me. So how, that's, how, that's how Paul did it. After 14 years, he took Titus and Barnabas along with him. Paul's been a believer here. Think about the context he's giving us. If you look back into chapter 1 and then the first verse that Paul, he's been there 14 years. Paul's been a believer now for almost 20 years total. And he's been faithfully ministering to the Gentiles across the Mediterranean. That's what he's been doing with his life as a believer. He's been sharing the gospel, going, planting churches, encouraging believers. Apparently, God called him to Jerusalem in verse 1. He says he went because of a revelation. So for those 20 years of following Christ, and up until this point where he's saying, hey, I was going to Jerusalem, Paul describes his effort as a follower of Christ as running the race. That's the imagery he gives us there, that he says, I was running the race. And this is an image that that he uses a lot to describe the Christian life. We see this imagery in several of his letters to churches. We see it in 1 Corinthians 9, for example. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And actually, in chapter 9, he, he actually fleshes out that imagery even a little more. But Paul is making this comparison that the Christian life is like a race. Why, why do you think Paul wants us to think of the Christian life as a race? If I was a teacher, that would be like a question I would have you answer on your paper. Why, why do you think Paul wants us to think of the Christian life as a race? There's a ton of connections. You've you got to think about the drive. It takes drive to, to run and to be in a race. That's not something that everyone wants to do. You have, you have to want it. There's suffering involved. If you've ever run, you know there's suffering involved. There's endurance. There's the effort that you put in. And then there's the prize at the end. Even if you don't win, if you complete the race, there is oftentimes a price at the, at the, prize at the end. But here, Paul's saying, look, don't, don't run just to, just to be in the race. Run as one who receives a prize. So the, the idea of the Christian life as a race is helpful for us, that we want to not give up, that we want to do it well. But 
here's another thing that he shows us in his, the way he runs his race here in verses 1 and 2, is that our race isn't meant to be lonely. Like we're not just a bunch of individual runners out making our way. That our, our race is meant to be run together. As we run, we can only run well if we're saying to others, like Paul, come along with me. You're not running the race of the Christian life if you're not running and at the same time saying, come along with me. Hey, come on, run with me. Let's do this together. That's essential. That's a part of the race. Fruitful discipleship is along with me discipleship. And there are other types of discipleship. Think about the types of discipleship that you may have seen. There's the listen to me discipleship, where we, all we do is just give you information. If you listen to me, a lot of times that, that's what Sunday morning can feel like. This is, a lot of this is mainly just listen to me discipleship. If you don't know me, if you have no idea what my life is like, I could be living completely different than what I'm telling you. And I might be living exactly what I'm telling you, but you have, you have no reason to know one way or the other. This is listen to me discipleship. There's also watch me discipleship. It's like sit on the sidelines and I'll do it and you see what I'm doing. And then there's listen to this person discipleship, which is just pushing them to other people. And then there's also learn for yourself discipleship, which most people end up choosing for themselves rather than being given. And maybe we give it by default when we're not eagerly investing in others. None of those are on their own wrong. All of those are a part of how we do discipleship, listening, watching, sharing with other people, learning for ourselves. They're all fine parts. But the best primary means for discipleship that creates fruit in others for the long term is along with me. And if this is true, if this type of discipleship, this along with me, arm in arm, let's live life together, come see my family, come see how I evangelize, let's talk about how I do quiet times and you do quiet times, let's share together, let me watch you evangelize, let me watch you do the Christian life, and let's give each other feedback. This along together discipleship, if it's really the design and we see it from Christ, we see it in Paul, then wouldn't we face opposition in this? It would seem like the along with me discipleship, if it bears the greatest, most long-term fruit, would be the type of discipleship that the enemy would work the hardest to stop. I think he's been pretty successful at stopping this type of discipleship. It's very easy to find the other types. It's really easy to listen to a podcast and think, I got discipleship today. How, how do we keep ourselves, how do we keep ourselves, and how does the enemy keep us from along with me discipleship? Here, here let me give you a couple. And I, I guess I'm saying this from Paul's point of view, maybe more than anything here. But the first is our lack of action. That maybe our first reason for an along with me, arm in arm, type of discipleship, the slow, plodding discipleship is our lack of action. If we're not doing, if we're not living a life for Christ, how can we bring someone along with us? Like, come along with me and watch me do nothing. That's, that's not going to work. We don't want that. No one wants that. So we just don't. A lack of action keeps us from doing discipleship as God intended. Many of us aren't really running. I mean, we're, we're, we're in the race because we're living, we're breathing, but we're not trying to, re to win a prize. We're, we're just going along. However this, the tide changes, we're there. It's fine. We're going to make it through this life. We're just doing the middle school PE run. <laughs> it's like, 
It's like just enough for the coach not to yell at us. Sorry, Mike. Everybody tries hard <laughs> in middle school. <laughs> if we aren't sharing the gospel, if we're not loving our families, if we're not ministering to the hurting, if we're not fellowshipping with God in prayer and Bible reading, then what are we going to bring others along into? We won't have anything to bring a person along into. So it's our lack of action. It's also our lack of vulnerability. So it's the other side of the lack of action. We don't need to be vulnerable if we're perfect. But as we establish all the time, none of us are perfect. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? All of us have been underneath the bar of perfect. None of us have and will make it on our own. So we need vulnerability to see what it's like when we're not perfect. So our lack of action is that we're not doing enough, but our lack of vulnerability is that we don't want to admit our weaknesses and our struggles. We're afraid that if we invite someone into our life, that they might see who we really are. Not that we're just not doing nothing, or not that we're not doing anything, but that we're also doing what we should not be doing. (laughs) That we're living in rejection of Christ. Well, that feels really scary because my secrets are fine when no one knows them. But if I let someone into my life, that can't happen. So there's a lack of vulnerability that keeps us from this along with me discipleship. I I think the opposite of action here in our list is not inaction, but wrong action. So going along with me means that others will see my secrets and my struggles. Are we willing to let people see into those spaces? Because the type of discipleship that just says, watch me, means that I can put whatever I want to in front of you. But the type of discipleship that says, let's do this together, means that you're going to see when I'm weak. And I'm going to be vulnerable in those times. And that really is helpful because our image of perfection is actually detrimental. Because when people around us can't reach our standards then they'll feel like they can't be in the Christian life. Well, no, yes, you can. You just need to not be around liars who act like they are the Christian life and being perfect. Here's the third one, and I'm sure we could make a longer list, but maybe these are the top three. It's our lack of time. I'm so busy, I don't have time for others. I don't know how I can make time to just to go along with someone or to, to make time to bring someone along. This, I've got too much going on to be able to bring someone along. I think that's a very, a very um, active scheme of the enemy in our lives. Is that we're so busy with good things, we're so busy doing a lot, that we're never doing the type of discipleship that really bears fruit. And I think it can be true that we get so busy that there's just not time for other people. But I also think our busyness becomes just an excuse to... It's really just a bad excuse because most of what we're doing with our time are things that people can come along with us. For example, and this is not to brag, but I think this is an example, and I'm not bragging because we've not done this well, but we've had families in our home where we've done our family worship time at night. Like, I could say, no, I'm too busy, I could put the kids to bed, or I could say, come along with me and watch us and help us put our kids to bed. We've had people in our house that have read the Bible story to our kids before they've gone to bed. We love that. So what are the ways that you can invite people into your spaces and say, come along with me? Because at your job, in your family, 
whatever you do for fun, you should be doing those things to the glory of God. <laughs> and if you are, then you can bring others along and see what that's like. And you can go with others to see what it's like as they do it. It's along with me that you're, you're doing these things together. So Paul is, is discipling this way. He, he's going to Jerusalem. He's telling us that he's going to meet the apostles. As he goes, he's discipling these young pastors, Barnabas and Titus. And here's what we see in, in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of, a false brothers, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that, we, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I, I love that as this letter is written to the Galatians, to, to know that this letter is also written for you, church, provision church, that because of the faithfulness of those who came before us, the gospel has been preserved for you. We sang in hope, hope of the Ages that, that the church will not be stopped. And it's not because of how good you are. It's because of how good God is and how beautiful his gospel is that it has been preserved for you. In verse 3, Paul assumes here, coming back to the text, in verse 3, Paul assumes his audience understood the religious meaning tied to circumcision. So he just mentions it without explaining it. We're going to see more about circumcision later in chapter 2, so next week, and then again in chapters 5 and 6. Um, so it's really the primary question of the letter is, is, can we be saved by faith, or is it faith plus works? That, that's, one, that's the, maybe if you're saying, what's the question of the letter? Is it faith alone, or is it faith plus works? And circumcision is the vehicle by which this debate happens. That's why it comes up several times. In, in this case, circumcision is the work that was being added to faith. So what is circumcision? I'll, I'll continue to answer this as I always do when we're all together theologically and just theologically. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant between Abraham and his descendants and God. So it was a sign of a covenant. And what was the covenant? That covenant comes from Genesis 17. Since this is going to keep coming up in Galatians, I'm going to go ahead and give you Genesis 17. We'll, we'll refresh on this passage as we go, but let's look at it together. Genesis 17, verse 9 and 10. And this is, this is where we get the covenant and circumcision from. And God said to Abraham, and before I get to this, I'm actually going to recap for you, verses 5 through 9. So God gives to Abraham his word. Hey, Abraham, here's what I'm going to give you in this covenant. So first he changes his name. He goes from Abram to Abraham. Then he says, I'm going to make you into nations. He's saying kings will come from you. I'll give you this land, Canaan. And, and I'm making with you not just a, a promise or a contract, but an everlasting covenant. And I will be your God and the God of your children. That's, that's what God says to Abraham. If you've got your Bibles and you want to flip over to Genesis 17, you'll see all of that in verses 5 through 9. And here's, here's what we see in verse 9. This is now Abraham, your end, Abraham, your end of the deal. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. There's a lot of repetition there, and that repetition shows the importance of it. It's, look, I want you to understand this is the sign of the covenant. And because of this covenant, circumcision carried great weight with the Jews. 
But the Greeks and the Gentiles, they, they would have had no attachment to circumcision. So that's why in verse 3, as Paul's coming in, he, he wouldn't have been circumcised. It's not a surprise to us that Titus wasn't circumcised because he wasn't Jewish. It's also no surprise that it's an issue here and that Paul mentions it because it is important to the Jews. In this context, Paul teaches us in Galatians that spiritual freedom is precious. So it's, it's, with, it's inside of this vehicle of circumcision that Paul teaches us that spiritual freedom is precious. Circumcision was this major issue at stake for the Galatians, and not just for them, but for all the early Christians. Basically, the argument was that you need to be Jewish before you can be Christian. So follow the Jewish law, meet criteria of the old covenant, and then you can enter into the new covenant. So how can you, I mean, the question would have been, how can you enjoy the new covenant if you didn't obey the old one? But, but this is the false gospel. This is what Paul was preaching against. This, this message of you have to be in the old covenant to enjoy the new covenant is Jesus and. It's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus circumcision. And when you add anything to Jesus to be saved, you enslave yourself to that addition. When you add anything to Jesus for your salvation, you enslave yourself to that addition. Now your salvation isn't really in Christ, it's in that other thing. In this case, circumcision. Paul calls submitting to this false gospel slavery. Look at verse 4. The people who wanted, to, who wanted Paul to make the Gentiles be circumcised wanted to crush their freedom in Christ and add the chains of the law. That's what he's saying in verse 4. So the church will always have people like this. This wasn't an anomaly. Just like we've always seen false teachers, this type of, um, this type of false gospel will always be a part of the life of the church. Because people enslaved to works will always try to enslave others to works. It's, it's a part of what a gospel of works does. It tries to bring others in. Freedom in Christ is almost too good to be true. Hey, freedom in Christ is too good to be true. You need circumcision. Freedom in Christ is too good to be true. You need to do this to be saved. You've got to, you've got to get this right before you can turn to Jesus. You've got to be this before you can turn to Jesus. Freedom in Christ, though, though seeming to be good, too good to be true, is not too good to be true. It is true. And this freedom is precious. And, and freedom in Christ is this. I, I want to give you a definition of freedom in Christ. Because I think that can sometimes be just like a, a churchism. Something that we say, and it really has no meaning behind it. It's just this vacant term, vacant phrase. But I'm going to say it like this. Freedom in Christ is joyful obedience to Him. Freedom in Christ is joyful obedience to Him. That doesn't sound like a definition of freedom, maybe. But what, what do we want? What is freedom for us? When we think of freedom, we think of being able to do anything we want. And, and really, to some degree, that is true. I mean, that's how, oftentimes how we reference America. This is America. We can do anything we want. We're free. To some degree, that's true. It's just that the very thing we were made to do is live in submission to Jesus. That's the purpose of your life, is to live in submission to Jesus. 
So, so really, the deepest yearning of your soul is to obey him. And the sin that is in you says, no, that can't be. Let's obey other things. So freedom in Christ is saying, no, let's do what you were made for. Let's want what you were made to want. The thing we truly want most is to obey Jesus. Sin makes us obey everything else. And when we do obey God, sin tries to keep us from obeying with joy. Isn't that true? How many times do we, do we drudge, like drudger, drudgingly do what we're supposed to do? All my friends get to do these fun things, but now I'm a Christian, so I don't, I don't get to. Like, that's not, that's, not, that's not joyful obedience. Like, God has made a better way for us. Like, we're not sad we don't have to, we don't live in the ways of the world. We're glad. Like, it's joyful obedience for us. It's joyful obedience that we get to lay down our lives for Christ. So freedom in Christ is joyful obedience to Him. And that is doing exactly what we really want. And this can only happen through the help and power of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us, Christian. The Holy Spirit enables our obedience and our attitude as we obey. I mean, credit where it's due. <laughs> that in our sin, we, we will keep finding ways to be dull in our obedience and to disobey. <laughs> but it is through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we're enabled to, have an, uh, to be obedient and to have an a- attitude of joy. It's a strange thing to think about, but, but freedom in Christ is really also slavery to Christ. But, but we don't mind this slavery, where slavery to our sin and to the world is harsh and wearisome. Slavery to Christ feels like freedom. The Spirit draws us to this freedom of slavery in Christ. Doesn't that, that sound strange? It sounds, it sounds strange coming out of my mouth. But Jesus says this about his leadership in Matthew 11. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You have been slave to your fear long enough. You have been slave to your sexuality long enough. You've been slave to your popular friends long enough. You've been slave to your money long enough. You've been slave to the expectations of your parents and your neighbors long enough. Take instead freedom in Christ. Take his yoke, not the yoke of the things of the world. You will be yoked. There will be something that will be on you, holding you down, enslaving you. But how good is it that Christ might say, no, those heavy burdens that you have wrestled with for so long, I will remove, I will break, and instead I will give you this light burden, this easy yoke, this rest that only can come from the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. Find rest for your souls in Christ. And when you have that peace and relief in Christ, protect it. It's precious. What a precious thing to be delivered from the sins that bind and weigh us down. In all the world, this peace and this freedom is sought after. It is, after all, a gift from Jesus himself. If Jesus came to you right now and said, I've got this gift-wrapped, bow-on-top gift for you, 
you'd have to think like there'd be a little bit of excitement flooding over, right? Like you'd be excited to get into that thing. I feel that way when other people give me gifts. If Jesus came to give me a gift, they would be like, let me get at it. Let me get at it. So here he's given us a gift. John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. It's a gift from, from God, not as the world gives. He doesn't give these yokes of slavery like fear and sexuality. Instead, he gives freedom. He says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do not yield this peace that comes by freedom in Christ. Do not yield that freedom. Do not yield in submission even for a moment. Look at verse 5. Do not yield in submission even for a moment. For the sake of the joy in your salvation, do not yield to those who would add to Jesus in your life. And for the sake of those who you will preach the gospel to, as you guard this precious freedom, you preserve the gospel for those who will someday be saved. It's a good gift. But, but how do you guard it? Like, how am I guarding this precious freedom? Like, what does that mean? What does it mean for me to guard the precious freedom of the gospel, of only Jesus, of, of, of only salvation by faith, justification by faith? Well, when you wake up, preach Jesus to yourself. When you wake up, preach that you are saved by His work alone. When you lay down, preach Jesus to yourself. That you, were, that you brought nothing but your sin to your salvation. When you get in your car, when you arrive in class, when you clock in at work, when you unlock your phone, preach the gospel to yourself over and over, day by day. Now listen to me. <laughs> listen to me. But what if you came along with me? Is that what you would see in my life? If I'm being honest, not, it isn't always. How do we build this in? How do we do this? How do we preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over? Find ways. I mean, put, put Scripture on your doorways. Put Scripture on your glasses. Put Scripture on your mirrors. Put Scripture that reminds you of the goodness of God where you go. Set alarms. Do what is needed to preach the gospel to yourself. Mark. I'm saying that because I need that too. We all need that. Do not yield the gospel. That Jesus died to forgive your sins. And that he rose again to defeat death. And that he's coming back again. And that, and that alone is our trust and, and for our hope for eternity. In that truth alone, that Jesus did what was needed for our salvation, they lived a perfect life, died a death we deserved, rose again, and is coming again soon. In that alone, can I have a relationship and fellowship with God? Do not yield. Paul didn't. He continues to tell about his visit with the apostles in verse 6. We're going to read all the way through verse 10 here. And for those who seemed to be influential, he's talking about the apostles, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, 
For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. As we see Paul's story here, we see that biblical fellowship is outward. Biblical fellowship is outward. Paul mentions in verse 2 that he presented the gospel to those that were influential. And now here in verse 6, he addresses their status again. He brings up their influence again. He asked them to confirm the gospel message he was spreading. That was the purpose of why he was with them. But he really didn't care about how important or unimportant they were. It wasn't their status that brought him there. It was God's revelation to, to go there. And remember, his message didn't depend on these men. And even those who were deemed significant by others couldn't add to the gospel Paul was preaching. That's what we see there in the text. They added nothing to him. Verse 6 says that. They added nothing to him. After all, God doesn't show partiality among his people. There, there's equality before God. The rich, the poor, the old, the young, the influential, and the forgotten, they're all valued as his children. In verse 7 and 8, the apostles recognized God called Paul to go to the Gentiles like God called Peter to go to the Jews. They're like, yeah, Paul, we see God's hand on you. We see the fingerprints of his call in your life. But notice, notice the language here. It, the language really takes the spotlight off of Paul and the other apostles, and it centers it on God. The gospel was what? The gospel was entrusted to them. They didn't claim the gospel. They weren't the knight in shining armor that went and saved the gospel from the top of the tower, right? I mean, they were entrusted the gospel. There was someone who was greater than them who gave them this gospel and is going to walk with them along the way. And their ministries were the work of the Holy Spirit through them. Both of those things are evident there. That the gospel was not there, it was theirs. It was only entrusted to them. They were stewards of God's gospel. And that their work is really not based on their greatness. Their work is based on the Spirit, what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's work through them. A good lesson in this for us is that God will make his gospel prevail. I mean, he will build his church. He will entrust it to faithful men through his work in faithful men. But we should be careful to remember that, that God is the main character in this almost two-chapter autobiography. As I was preparing for the sermon, I, there was a lot of times where I was thinking, this is Paul's story, Paul's story. I had to keep coming back. This is God's story. Like, this is all not for the purpose of us looking at Paul and saying, look how good Paul was. It's all for the purpose of us saying, look how good God is. This is God's story. This is, it's all about him. He's the main character. He's at the center of this. And Paul wants to keep our focus on the work and kindness of God through, through all of this. So verses 9 and 10, keep God at the center as the apostles send them out, Paul and Barnabas and Titus, to proclaim Christ and care for the needy. Verse 9 says, they gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And this is kind of the point in the, the whole story. This is why we're here. It takes us back to the main idea that Paul's apostolic ministry and gospel message were confirmed by the other apostles. They're like, yes, Paul, we see it. We see that God is working. We agree with what you're teaching, and we want you to go and continue. Thank you for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. It's, it's, it's an approval of this main idea. Yes, the, the message is correct. Paul's also here, though, showing us the nature of fellowship, that our fellowship with one another is meant to be outward. 
So what happened when those in Jerusalem gave Paul the right hand of fellowship? Like, what was the goal of that? What did they do? They went on their way to proclaim the gospel. Like, it wasn't like they stood there and, like, enjoyed each other for 14 more years. Like, they were like, okay, glad you got the gospel, right? Go, go make disciples. Like, go build fellowship with those who are lost. Like, bring them in. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. Go do that. That, that, was, the, that was the trajectory of fellowship here. They went to make disciples. And it is real tempting in the church today to make fellowship inward, where we just enjoy each other and we're okay enjoying each other. That we, we pat each other on the back for our good theology and we pat each other on the back for our beautiful services and we just keep enjoying that. The call of fellowship, though, the call of genuine biblical fellowship is to to go into the world, to go proclaim the gospel to those who are now strangers, to those who are now lost, to those who are now in the harvest waiting to become children of God. It's easy for us to get into our circles and protect those circles. We build walls and aim to never lose our tight friendships we've built. But that, that's not biblical fellowship. Yes, it has inward elements. Like we shouldn't forget each other. There are inward elements of knowing and loving each other deeply, building lifelong friendships and relationships. That should happen. But within that, it's always open to newcomers. That a fellowship that closes off to newcomers is not a biblical fellowship. It's actually a really worldly fellowship maybe even mocks the design of what God has for his people in fellowship with him. Biblical fellowship between believers is gospel-centered and missional. And I was thinking about this, maybe a better way to describe verses 6 through 10 is that biblical fellowship is magnetic. I've used this example before, and it's probably something that I'll, I'll keep using. Biblical fellowship is magnetic. And here's why I like the idea of magnetic. Fellowship should bring people in towards us. It should be attractive when others see genuine fellowship. I mean, if any of you have ever moved before, you know the feeling of being in a new place and just wanting people to be around. Like, I don't know anyone. I would love for, to know someone just to watch a football game with or, or to just know and, and talk with and have and just to be around. We want fellowship. And, and even more, the fellowship that's based around something eternal. For those who aren't believers, a meaningful fellowship that's just not based on wasted stuff, wasted time. And for us believers, the fellowship of, of being with Christ and with others. So it should be attractive when others see genuine fellowship. And a magnet draws, and a magnet also is drawn. You think about the pull of a magnet towards what it's going to, towards even another magnet. That it's draw, the magnets are drawn to each other. So our fellowship draws others, but we are also drawn to them. We're also, we're also moving into the world saying, we, we want you to be in our fellowship. We want you, stranger, to become a neighbor, to become family. We don't want strangers in Union County. Provision Church, we want family in Union County. We want people who are welcome in our living rooms, who can see our messy garages. We want people who know us and love us. And that can only happen if our fellowship reaches out in Christ. So we aren't protective over what we have, whether that's financially or the point here is we aren't protective over what we have relationally. Instead, we're open-handed 
We're generous, ready to share and give and add to our fellowship. But anti-biblical, I think even just unbiblical is fine, but unbiblical fellowship is also magnetic because a magnet can attract, but what else can it do? It can repel. How many of you have been repelled by the closed fellowships of other believers? Which I believe is an unbiblical fellowship. A closed fellowship of other believers is not a fellowship that's flowing through the love of Christ into the world. It's flowing through the love of ourselves into each other. So we don't have room for other people. How do I have room for you when I'm too busy thinking of myself? A magnet can repel. Newcomers can feel like it's impossible to break the invisible barrier of old friendships. How can I have fellowship and communion with people who don't want my friendship, who, who I can't know, who don't want to know me? You, you can't. You can't do that. So if we, church, reject the missional aspect of fellowship, then we will be the magnet that repels. Provision, never forget that you were once new. Never forget that you were once the stranger in the seat, grabbing coffee, walking in from a new parking lot. That there may be people here today for the first time who will someday be your dearest friend. Isn't that good to think about? Like, what if today you could have a conversation with someone who in 10 years you can't imagine life without? Isn't that good? Isn't that sweet to think about? Because that's what we want, is this biblical family, this fellowship that looks mirrors more a family than acquaintances. Let's be careful to always tear down the walls of unbiblical fellowship that unintentionally and intentionally keep people out in order to protect our comfort. After all, our fellowship with each other is a result and demonstration of our fellowship with God. 1 John 1.3 says this, that, that which we have, this is what 1 John 1.3 says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, this is sharing the gospel, that we're, we're proclaiming this gospel to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. We're proclaiming this gospel, why? So that you can have fellowship with us. And where does that fellowship come from? Well, that fellowship, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So the fellowship with Christ, I I can love because Christ first loved me. I can have genuine biblical fellowship because the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit has, has extended their fellowship to me. We we just sing about it and come now found that we might be able to have fellowship with God. Because of his fellowship with us, it's open-handed that he drew us in, that we can extend fellowship to others. God loves us deeply and fully and will never leave us or give us up. And yet he is always opening his arms to receive new sons and daughters into his family. Isn't that good? Like we know that, you know that. That God, God's got enough room in his heart, in his love for all of us and, and whoever else is to come. My question is, do you? Like, are we mimicking Christ in that? Are we mimicking Christ and saying, yeah, bring everyone. Let's do this together. Let's extend our fellowship. Let's see the kingdom grow. If he has opened his arms to us and made us his children, 
How could we not be eager to invite people into his family and then receive them as brothers and sisters? So our fellowship, being Christ-centered, should drive us to joyful, joyfully participate in his mission. And his mission doesn't stop at sharing the good news of salvation in Christ alone. It continues into making disciples who make disciples. We're not just satisfied with seeing people come to Christ. We want more than that. We want them to be filled with all the fullness of God. And we desire that because we're a part of the fellowship with them. We want to enjoy their joy. So yeah, we share the good news and then we continue to encourage and make disciples, but not as a factory makes machines, but as a family welcomes in new members. Do you want to be a part of the family of God today? I hope as you've heard the word preached that the family of God is attractive to you, that what you've heard stirs your heart towards something greater than what is temporary, that the God of the Bible is working in you right now to draw you to himself you were born to be a child of God. And Jesus came into this world and lived a life of perfection, a life you could not live, to take the punishment that you deserved for your sin. He died a death on the cross for us, and he rose again to defeat death so that you could be with him forever. Because right now, if you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God. You're an enemy of God, and you need saving. It's been done. The work of your salvation has been done. Would you turn to Christ today? Would you join the family of God today? Trust Jesus for your salvation. He calls, to, he calls for you to come and follow him. Will you? You can right now. Just call out to him from where you're sitting. Today we're going to have baptism after we sing. And make sure you join us. Michael's going to give you a little more instructions for that in just a little bit. We're going to be outside, so stick around with us. We love having baptism together. But baptism is a step of obedience. Maybe some of you need to take a step of obedience too today. Are you hearing God's word only? Or are you preparing to be doers as well? How should you respond to God's word today, Christian? As you've heard it, as you've heard Galatians 2, 1 through 10, what do you need to do to be obedient to God this morning, this week, this month? Let me ask you with this in close. What do you need to be obedient, and when are you going to do it? Because if not now, then when? If not now, then when? The more you delay, the easier it is to delay. I made myself, I made myself a promise that it, I don't know if it was a promise, but at 23 that I would have a six pack. I didn't. I was like, well, 25. Well, 30. Well, I'm 32. Still don't have one. I like to think I'm working harder now than I've ever worked before at that. It's easy for us to keep making excuses and putting things off, whether that's eating right or as a matter of obedience, honestly. But in every other area, Christian, are you discipling along with? Are, are you fellowshipping with others in a magnetic way that draws others? I hope you'll be obedient today. If you want to talk through any of that, 
if, if you're interested in following Christ and you need more information, I'm going to be at the back doors. I'd love to talk to you. I can't wait to keep worshiping with you. We're worshiping together now as we're preaching the word. We're worshiping together as we're about to pray together. I hope you will be praying with me. And then we're going to worship together as we continue to sing. I am really excited to sing King of Kings with you. And then we're going to worship together as we baptize our brothers and sisters outside in just a minute. What a good day to worship together, to just enjoy running this race together today. Can I pray with you? Father, we love you. I, I, we keep just coming back to your goodness in these passages. I, I think about Paul's life and that he could have been easily entrenched in seeking influence and wanting the approval of others and falling captive to those who would say it is Jesus plus circumcision. But God, I'm so thankful for your kindness and your goodness that the gospel has been preserved even for us today. That the gospel we preach is the same gospel that was being preached when you were sending out your apostles. God, that this gospel is untarnished that we have not been deceived, God, that this is the true and only gospel, that you are all we need for salvation. God, thank you for the work it took to, to, for that to be true, that you died for our sins, that you rose again, that you are fully God and fully man, that you are right now in heaven and that you will soon return to claim what is yours, to rule and to reign. God, we praise you for the, for the truth that we know that that day will someday be. Father, thank you for loving us so well. Thank you for extending your fellowship to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.